Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and on today's program, we're going to be talking to the CEO and publisher of Bragg Media. Uh, They've recently, late 2019, relaunched that great magazine, Rolling Stone. I'm going to be talking to Luke Howe about how he actually got his hands on uh, the Rolling Stone uh, publication and how he's doing uh, dealing with the coronavirus, a lot of publishers have gone out of business or rolled up, uh, uh, pulled the shutters down. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how this young guy is actually coping with the challenge of the coronavirus. Um, then we'll talk to Professor Hans Hendrich. He's a professor of Chinese business and management at Sydney Uni at a time when China's really sticking it to Australia over our desire to have an independent uh, uh, probe into what in the hell happened in Wuhan with the coronavirus. China doesn't like it, and so they're starting to pick on us, uh, refusing to um, buy our barley unless there's an 80% tariff on top. This could get worse. Let's hope it doesn't. And then we'll talk to a guy by the name of Adam Gilmore of Gilmore Technology. Adam is a bit of a, a rocket scientist. Well, he's not really. He's a finance guy who's got into rockets. Uh, and I'm really surprised to find out how many satellites are out there and why do we use them? He's in the business of building rockets that will take satellites and put them up there in the sky. We'll see how this Aussie is going to do in, with the space race. That's the show. Without any further ado, let's catch up with Luke Gerges, the CEO and publisher at Bragg Media. Now, Luke, uh, I um, came in contact with him uh, late last year when... Rolling Stone uh, was relaunched in Australia, November 2019. And uh, I think it's really uh, important to check up on how everything's going, particularly in this uh, unusual year, 2020, featuring a thing called the coronavirus. Luke, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me, Peter. So, Luke, um, I guess the, the first thing I should ask you about given the fact you, you run a business and the coronavirus has clearly been a curveball for lots of us, how have you and your business, Bragg Media, coped with the arrival of the coronavirus? Yeah, I guess if we look at our peers, um, relatively speaking, we are okay. Uh, the Every other publisher I can think of has either closed down their Australian office completely, like you know BuzzFeed and um, 10 daily yesterday um, or they've stood down a lot of staff, given people a lot of pay cuts. Uh, we've done none of that yet. In fact, we've hired a few people since COVID. Uh, so we weren't immune from the effects of COVID. We got hit really hard. Uh, but I think relatively speaking, um, we are in a fortunate position. Has the hit been primarily advertising revenue? Totally. We lost a million dollars of advertising revenue in three days mm. um, and our pipeline um, of potential revenue was probably cut by like 
50%, I would say. Mm. Um, so we, yeah, we got really, we got really ambushed by the whole COVID thing. Um, but we're, we're on the mend. Good. Good to hear, mate. Now, just so people understand, um, as I say, I, I, I came to know about you when you relaunched Rolling Stone in Australia in November of last year. But before I, I, I feature talking to you about Rolling Stones, Rolling Stone, tell us about the profit centres for Bragg Media. Where do you make your money? We make our money from, um, I guess, three primary ways. Um, the first way being uh, just selling straight advertising. So a brand might come to us and say, can you promote these headphones and we'll put ads and content around the place. Um, the second way is through content marketing where you know somebody like a university will come to us and say, hey, we need to generate new leads for enrollment coming up. So we will create a lead generation content marketing funnel, move a certain demographic through a funnel, funnel collect leads, and we get paid per lead or per, per acquisition or whatever that deal would be. Mm. Um, and then the third way now that we have Rolling Stone is selling um, the print magazine um, and also having we're, – we're sort of looking at the next phase is we're going to be launching a fashion, fashion label with Rolling Stone, looking into the venue space and all of that sort of stuff. Okay, so um, tell us about an example of how you would use content marketing to help a a business or a university that wants to actually get greater reach into a potential audience. Cool. So I'm actually talking to a finance company at the moment, so I'll use this example, not naming the company. (laughs) Um, But this finance business or this banking business wants to appeal to young people and get them investing in the stock market and caring about their super. So we are creating a whole bunch of content targeting the Gen Z millennial audience about um, how to be smart with your money, how you should use this COVID as a way to capitalize and catch up to the wealth of the of the bigger of the older generations um and we will get a data set of everybody that reads those articles watch those videos um engages with that content and then we retarget that audience set with more i guess a, a slightly harder sell where we introduce the company and introduce their offering in amongst another piece of story and then we get that's slower down the funnel we get a new data set of that and the more highly engaged data set and then lastly is the proper lead generation piece where we say, hey, we're going to retarget everybody from who read the first few pieces of content and go, hey, here's an offer, here's an opportunity, sign up um, and potentially go on the draw to win a prize or, or get the special offer or whatever that is. And then that's the real hard conversion at the bottom of the funnel. And we do that through all of our channels, whether it be Rolling Stone, Tone Deaf, um, any of our titles, we, we sort of create the content, do the marketing, and, and move people through a funnel. Okay, so tell us about Tone Deaf. Uh, so Tone Deaf is a music publication. Um, so we've done stuff with finance clients and, 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 and education clients and things in the past, or all, all you, every category you can think of, really, uh, using m- music topics and, and tapping into a music audience and getting them, um, getting them to convert on whatever sort of category or, or sales proposition they have. What kind of um, readership or followership do you have for Tone Deaf? So Tone Deaf is a millennial slash Gen X 
publication, um, and it covers all types of music, anything from mumble rappers to stadium rock. Mm. Uh, we've also got a dedicated Gen Z publication for the younger audience, um, which is called Don't Bore Us. Then we have a music industry trade publication called The Industry Observer, which is all you know music executives, aspiring music industry people and artists. Um, and then we also, now we have Rolling Stone, um, which I don't think needs an introduction. It's been the cultural backdrop of the world for the last 50 years. That's a pretty flat demographic, everything from Gen Z to up to the baby boomers. And then we've got um, The Brag, which, um, again, is millennial Gen X, and it covers everything you know, from education to travel to food to all of that sort of stuff. Okay, so is Rolling Stone the only hard copy print publication you've got? Correct. Okay. Um, was this a, a conscious decision or what, were these um, f- formerly print publications and they just eventually morphed into being totally online? Yeah, well, we bought the brag. It, it was a street press um, and it was free in the pubs and clubs and everything <sighs> around Sydney. Mm. Uh, and we eventually decided to wind that up because um, people just weren't – I mean, it was important back when it started because everybody was reading the street press to work out what gigs were coming up and the news and everything yep. like that uh but i guess the reason why the brag mag existed no longer served that purpose and so we had a decision to end it or change it and because we signed the deal with rolling stone and we were going to invest heavily in rolling stone we we kind of didn't want to split our focus so we decided to just close that print and just focus on rolling stone okay so if we I want to get the Rolling Stone last in many ways because it's it's such a as you m- made the point it's an iconic um, publication it's a, the cultural backdrop a great turn of phrase to explain um, its role uh, in worldwide um, music and, and culture. In fact, I can remember in my younger days when I was the business and political commentator on Triple M, working with Doug Mulray, who was the number one um, radio personality in those days. Um, uh, Paul Keating going to the, I think the probably the 1993 election, um, came in and uh, was wearing, um, no, was given uh, Ray-Bans and his photograph was taken in the front, uh, front, the front cover of Rolling Stones in like a Blues Brothers type um, uh, cover and it was quite famous. It was, you know, replayed right around all the newspapers and stuff like that. So it was one of the best covers I've ever seen. Uh, though I, I guess I'm biased that political, <laughs> political and business uh, covers are more important than, say, Mick Jagger at his best or something like that. Yeah, I love that. And I think when Rolling Stone, um, they, they dip their toe politically, um, a lot like significant, they do it a lot editorially, but mm. when they give the cover to something politically, mm. um, it's always a big moment. And we, we have something in the works ourselves, so we'll see if that comes off this year. Okay, good stuff. In fact, I'm, I'm actually interviewing uh, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg um, on Friday. And so I did a bit of research on, on Josh, and like his, his background is really you know, unusual. Do you know much about him? I don't. Well, he was he was a good enough tennis player to play against people like Philippusis and Rafter. He he went to two world university games representing Australia for tennis. Um, and there's photographs on the on the on the uh, websites around the the place showing him look like a very normal. Um, well, all the girls in my and our staff, <laughs> he was actually very attractive. So you wouldn't believe it, but he actually was a very high achiever, uh, Josh. 
No, that's not fair. You're not allowed to have it all. <laughs> yeah, and the lawyer as well, the whole bit. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's by the way. Um, but also Luke Luke Gurgis. Is that the right pronunciation, Luke? Or yeah, you nailed it. Okay. Oh, it depends. Do you want to do you want to uh, say it in the traditional Egyptian way or yep. the or the, the traditional Egyptian yeah, yeah you've, you've nailed it in terms of how everybody says it, but the Egyptian Egyptian way with the accent is Gedigan. I don't even say it that way. <laughs> now, now yeah. obviously there 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 is a Luke uh, Jurgis or Gurgis who's the Coptic soldier, a hip hop art artist. Is that you or someone who's been impersonating you? Uh, that was me for about I reckon three years or so when I was eighteen. Right. And I had a crack at it, and um, I realised I was no good, so I gave it up. <laughs> well, it's good <laughs> to see that you you actually have. Had a crack uh, on stage and doing it live. It's a it's a very hard gig, isn't it? Yeah, it was the one of the most fun periods of my life. It was great. What do you think you learned from that experience? Apart from the fact uh, you weren't well, good enough. Well, look, my experience. Um, I've I've spent the last 10, 12 years as an artist manager. I've never done media publishing prior to this. So I was um, an artist with a whole bunch of friends who are artists. Um, and we all kind of got dropped from our label at the one time, or the label went bankrupt, actually. Um, and we all kind of had no support, so I said I would do it. Um, and then I quickly realized that I was far better manager than I was artist. So I gave up being an artist, and I learned the art of artist management and, and sort of helped the careers of my friends. Um, and that was probably the best thing I learned, is I learned that I was, you know, really good at managing art and growing careers as opposed to, being the artist myself. Mm. So there's a bit of Paul Keating in you because Keating used to manage a, a rock band called the Ramrods before before he went into politics. Yeah. Look, I think being an artist manager um, in music, and I still manage some talent, but they're not artists, they're not musicians. Mm. Um, but being a specifically an artist manager is one of the hardest jobs I think you can do because you need to be an absolute, you need to be very sophisticated in finance, project management, uh, creative, uh, negotiating. You need to have all of these skills and every conversation you have with somebody, you are far less skilled at it than them. So when I'm negotiating a contract, I'm negotiating with another lawyer. I have my own lawyer admittedly, but um, I'm, I'm not as sophisticated with legal stuff than the lawyer I'm negotiating with. And then when I'm talking about, you know, A&Ring a record, I'm not as sophisticated of A&Ring a record as the A&R person with the record company. And so you end up having to be um, extremely competent in all of these things without actually being an expert at it. And that is a very hard thing to pull off when there's 10 different categories of skills you need to be all over. So anyone who's been an artist manager for more than five years is, I think, a rock star. Mm. Have you thought, well, look, I'm in a game where I don't have experience, particularly in your early days, uh, you had experience being an artist, but actually managing an artist. Did you look around the world to see who were the great managers of either um, artists or sports people, and learn from, you know, maybe even read their, their their biographies to work out how you actually be good at managing people? And I I know John Fordham, who recently passed away. John was a guy who managed someone like John Laws and a lot of you know, really well-known 
talented people. Uh, and John was very gifted at being a, a manager and negotiating contracts and things like that. Have you have you actually modelled yourself or learnt some things from you know famous managers of of artists or sports people? Yeah, I first read a Glenn Wheatley biography. Oh. Um, he managed Little River Band, um, and then I also was very lucky to have somebody meet me for coffees whenever I had stupid questions to ask. And that was John Watson who managed Midnight Oil and Silver Chair and, um, you know, still mm. extremely successful manager today. And I still call him what I have, what I need advice. Um, so I was very lucky to have, you know, an extremely successful person supporting me. Um, and, you know, it was an infrequent coffee, but it was extremely valuable. Uh, and then, yeah, obviously I, I read, I read, read all the books and tried to learn and digest as much as I can. I'm a nerd. Like I'll, I'll read and dissect things, um, very forensically, but, you know, far more than most people will. So that was absolutely my, my strategy. <laughs> mm. It's funny. You bring up the name Glenn Wheatley. Glenn was running the M's as we called it in those days when they employed me. And I remember Charlie Fox, who was the, um, the, uh, uh, manager of the station at the time, uh, no, program director, he actually said, Switz, it's it's wild for a station like us to have a person like you working on a rock station. But <laughs> that was just, you know, Glenn could see and, and the people working with him, like David White, who was the, the news director, could see that the, you know, the, the people were starting to care about business and politics. And it was an era of deregulation, which, you know, Paul Keating and Bob Hawke brought in and it really changed the world and it explains why there are companies like yours around nowadays, um, you know, digital businesses are, that are able to, analyze people and, and target uh, advertising and marketing more effectively than ever before. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, just to your point, people, you know, it's weird that people care about politics and business and whatever at that time. Um, people are surprised to know that now more than ever, especially with the Gen Z audience, the younger TikTok audience, um, they are more sensitive to their careers and their finances and their um, – and I guess, you know, growing up and career development and education than any, than the, than the millennial and Gen X generations before them. Mm. Um, they are so fixated on that and people don't know that. So it's never been more relevant, you know, the po- politics and finance. Yeah. And, and, and like, I'm like, I've often made this point that, you know, it was 1987 when Triple M employed me and about 1988, I think Today FM and, and Fox in Melbourne employed uh, Ross Greenwood, and then Paul Clitheroe came along with the TV show. David Koch was working. Oh, there, there were no money. There were no money men until the the late eighties, but across the nineties and two thousands, you know, young people grew up with like money was like the one of the number one shows on Channel Nine in those days. So kids have grown up with money education like never before. So it's not a surprise to me that you know Generation Z and and other millennials are really interested in money. Totally. Um, and, you know, without getting in down the rabbit hole of the Board of Education, not taught in school, and so you got to learn it somewhere else. Mm. Well, yeah. the, the big problem, I, I used to be a school teacher many, many years ago. Most people don't want to listen anyway when they're at school, so <laughs> trying to teach money. <laughs> though, I've got to say, some of the people who try to teach it have never earned a dollar in their life, so they'll never really be very good at it. Now, let's get down yeah. to you and Rolling Stone. Like, why did it need to be relaunched? Why did it disappear out of the Australian media scene? 
Uh, look, without boring you with all the details, um, before PMC bought Rolling Stone globally, it was tied up here in Australia with a very strange, you know, licensing contract that okay. was borderline. It was actually not borderline. It was uncommercial. Um, and Bauer Media were running it. And um, there was no really no way to unwind that contract until... PMC, you know, there was a new global owner, yep. um, and so when that when that happened, we were able to go over and renegotiate a proper joint venture, a proper collaborative um, deal with uh, Rolling Stone globally, and actually come back and do it in a big way, and do it the way I feel like it it, it always should have been done. Now, the people that worked on Rolling Stone here in Australia were extremely talented and very good writers and photographers and, and all of that, um, amazing publishers, but. You know, they were still bound by the deal that, you know, that was the day were had to work under. Um, and I don't, I don't think, you know, the best operators in the world could have pulled that off with that with that contract. So um, that's why it had, that's why it had to go away and come back. So, Luke, it, it, when you look at the the caliber of the content that was being produced, even before you guys got involved. Was it still good quality content, but it was just poorly marketed? It wasn't directed at a new audience. It was sort of dying in the hands of, of older people who were maybe like me progressing from Rolling Stones to the Australian newspaper and financial review. Yeah. Um, and, and in their defense, though, it would have been very hard to remarket and reinvest uh, in those past businesses with the current deal that they had. Mm. So. We're, we're blessed with the opportunity to be able to do that, and that's why we're doing it. Mm. How, how would it be different then? Just if think about Rolling Stone before you got it and how it is now as you try to take it to the market and reinvigorate the brand, um, well, I guess with you know, people who always loved it but may have got lost from it, and the, the new breed of potential readers. Uh as in, how does it work practically, or how has the contract allowed us to do it? Well, yeah. Well, what are you doing? Because one of my, my great buddies many years ago got the the, the gig doing breakfast on um, Triple M in, in Brisbane, and I said to Dave Gibson, and he was working with Rob Duckworth at the time. I said, I said, what kind of audience you're after, Dave? He said, any bugger with an ear, and that was the <laughs> that was the best of his marketing strategy. Anyone's got an ear, but clearly you would have a, a more strategic marketing uh, targeted audience. What is that? Yeah, it's very different with the digital as it is with the print. Um, and the print people are the people that effectively like vinyl records and buy vinyl. You know, mm. there's no rational reason to buy a vinyl record. I'm I'm somebody who buys vinyl. Mm. Um, you know, everyone's got Spotify, so why would you buy a record? But I do it, and I love it, and it's and it's a real way for me to unplug, and that's what the magazine offers. It offers people to get off their laptops and really experience art in their hands, um, and that's something that we why we've invested so heavily in the, in the actual stock in the magazine. It's a borderline coffee table book. So when we're selling the magazine, it's a very different target market to online. Now, um, it is a lot closer to anyone with an ear, the online strategy. We have... Um, different writers and different categories online of content we produce for the very different tiger markets because Rolling Stone is very flat in terms of its demo target. Um, it has everyone from the Gen Z kids. You know, we've got Tones and I on the front cover um, who's got a very younger audience uh, and everyone from from those kids to the, uh, you know, long-term Rolling Stone readers who have been reading it since the 60s. Um, 
it's uh yeah it, it's it's really an iconic commentary of, of everything that's happening in the world at that moment and that of course appeals to all those age demographics okay. so we have a strategy for every demo um and every product okay mate so let's just wrap it up how many people do you employ nowadays I think we're up to 20 on last count. I'll have to check. I never know the answer to that question. Okay, that's good enough. 20 is good. <laughs> and and apart from all the other stuff you do, do you have businesses that come in and say, hey, we don't understand this audience. You do. Make it work for us. We have just done that for an insurance company. So, yeah. Well, mate. Um, we, 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 we will get it. Yeah, we'll get a company that comes to us and says, hey, how do we talk to young people? What do young people care about? Or, or should we even bother targeting young people? Mm. Um, you know, are they interested in this kind of thing? And that's what we, we will go out and do some research on their behalf and come back to them with the findings. Well, Luke, it's always great to uh, see a young person in there having a real real crack. And uh, I think uh, what you're doing at Bragg Media is a, a great piece of um, Australiana. Well done, mate. Well done. Thank you very much, Peter. I appreciate it. Pleasure. And that was Luke Gurgis, the CEO and founder of Brag Media. Now, uh, I'd like to invite you to help us out here. We have the Switzer Fear, Greed and Hope Survey. It's a quarterly gauge of how Australians are feeling about stocks, property and the economy. We want to know your opinions along with your hopes and fears for the future and how these have changed since our last survey three months ago. Just go to switzer.com.au slash surveypod at SurveyPod, to complete the survey now. It only takes two minutes, and you can enter the draw to win a signed copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. That's the Fear, Greed, and Hope survey at switzer.com.au slash surveypod, one word. And we've got 2,000 people already responded, but we'd love to get your uh, views and your hopes and aspirations in, in this survey. So please join in and give us your, your best contribution. Joining me is Professor of Chinese Business and Management at the University of Sydney Business School, Professor Han Hendrich. Hans, thanks for joining us on the program. Hello, Peter. How are you? Very good. So tell us, with calls for an inquiry into China's handling of COVID-19, tensions are clearly building with our diplomatic relationships. What do you think is the best way forward? Well, I think the problem is more or less resolved now because I think the concern on the Chinese side was that the, the, the call for the inquiry would have all kind of implications that they were worried about, uh, including demand for reparations or including demand for access by, I think, people like weapons inspectors who would be able to come in uh, without much cooperation with, with their local authorities. So I think once that's been resolved and the way it looks now, that's over because the solution that was found at the World Health uh, Association, I think, was to say China is part of it. It's run by the WHO. So I think all of those concerns that they had originally are basically gone now. Yeah, and now, just overnight, I know the, the Chinese ambassador basically said that what Australia called for and what they got from this uh, much wider group um, is not the same. Is the ambassador right? Yes, I think he's he's right because it's it's now it's a it's a it's a very broadly based inquiry. I think the the powers that the 
Australian position originally had thought of that the inquiry should have, have been watered down. Uh, it's now multilateral. It's it's run through the WHO. So all of that, I think, is much less stringent than what originally was intended when the, when the very first call was made. Mm. Do, do you suspect that Australia was uh, motivated and maybe tooled up by the US administration? Well, that's, that's, that's hard to say, but I think what, what, uh, what would have made life easier for, for Australia in hindsight uh, would have been a more multilateral coordination of the call uh, because the way it, it now looks is, is Australia leaned fairly far out of the window uh, and now has to, to carry some consequences. Yeah, and, and I guess on two hands, uh, I'd like to ask on one, one hand, do you think that the world needs to get from China a serious commitment to finding out and explaining to the rest of the world what went wrong? And then on the other hand, do, do we have to be mindful of that if this actually reveals China's irresponsibility, it might end up being, might damage the business relationship between Australia and China? Well, I, I think on your point, first point, I think the, the, the question to get more information and to get the very best information on on how all of this evolved, where the virus came from, uh, how the news were uh, spread and, and made known internationally and all that, that's something I think which is something that, that everybody wants to see and, and simply as a, as a matter for learning for future Incidents because this probably was not the last uh, pandemic we have seen, whether out of China or whether from elsewhere, uh, so that that people know how this how this worked in this case. Uh, and I think China has agreed to to some degree to provide uh, the information in that in that framework that was agreed upon. Now, um, with the question, will that will that produce evidence of China having mishandled? Uh, the virus. I I don't think it will produce evidence, kind of smoking guns in terms of a lab with with uh, altered viruses there. But I think what it what it would do is bring Australia. Sorry, that was. I think what happens is that that is not going to happen, and I think the the economic implications are not going to be all that severe. I think what happens economically is that China is signaling its displeasure uh, to Australia. Uh, but China has at the same time been quite careful to say this is, these are technical issues, which always leaves the door open to come to technical solutions. That means the way it looks, these tariffs, if there is some agreement that Australia can reach, could disappear within fairly short time. So it's not a, not a long-term political damage that is mm. hard to repair. Okay, I guess I know you don't know the answer, but what's your your best guess on this eighty percent tariff on Australian barley? Is it basically a penalty for not being, you know, a, a supporter of China? I think it is. You can say that from from our perspective, and 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 that's the perspective of of, a, of a, an observer who who looks at how things operate, and you would say yes. That's, it's not so much, I think, a penalty as it is much more a signal that the Chinese say here. Yeah, we, we can do you harm if you do us harm. 
uh, with these political maneuvers, but we don't want to let it lead to a breakdown in relations. What could happen, I think, is if behind the scenes, Simon Birmingham or whoever it is in Canberra and the Chinese will be able to sit together and say, well, how can we resolve that? Uh, we could have a solution fairly quickly. I don't think it's something that's set for five years, uh, as, as was announced. Mm. What do you think, if we can rule out the, the current problems around the coronavirus and, and look at the relationship between Australia and China in terms of our, our business connections, were, were you um, optimistic that the, the mutual interaction was going to be beneficial to both parties on a significant scale? Or were you worried that China would increasingly get a, a greater advantage out of the relationship? No, I think, I think the relationship is quite advantageous to, to Australia. Uh, what we, I think what we don't see, and we've done a report on that a few years back, uh, is the way in which Australian, and it's not just resources or agricultural goods that we normally think about, but uh, Australian manufacturing ac across a range of industries and, and other industries, including services, are in fact fairly deeply integrated, not only in the Chinese economy, but in global value chains that are linked to China. So goods migrating as intermediaries from China to other places to then only get to the final consumers. And Australia is part of that. Uh, and we used uh, value-added data to, to, to kind of find out to what degree we are in there. And we are actually quite well integrated. So we benefit from, in, in terms of our links with China, we benefit in form of access to global value chain. So the goods that we export to China would go on to other markets as well. Mm. One undercurrent um, feeling of disdain that is simmering, I guess, on the surface in some media outlets, but below the surface, I think, for, with lots of Australians, is the fear that China is buying up a lot of our assets. Um, how significant is Chinese investment in Australia and in, in particular into, into key industries? Well, we, we, we're just about to launch our, our next report with the data on 2019, so we haven't totally finalised that. Um, the, what, what has happened in recent years is that Chinese direct investment into Australia actually has gone down. Uh, and the number of, of big changes that have happened, China has originally up to 2013 uh, invested very heavily into resources, energy, that's mining, iron ore mining, coal mining, uh, LNG and, and, and oil. Um, that has gone down quite considerably and the big state-owned investors have pulled out. Um, where I think most public concern lies is with investment in agriculture. Mm. And that's actually something where the Chinese, we've seen that over the years because we thought investment would be much bigger than it turned out to be. Uh, what has happened there, I think, is that or that's our view, really, um, that Chinese have uh, the Chinese investors have learned that they can't buy a farm and just run it. Uh, they have to localize. That was one point, uh, and they have to to professionalize. So they have to bring Australian management in there. Um, they have to run it the way it's it's run here, which is different from what they are used to, more expensive. So mm. they have pulled back actually. 
And the other trend in the agricultural area, which we found interesting, was that they've gone more towards processing, and that's processing in Australia uh, to export, for example, beef back into China, which uh, a few examples of, of abattoirs in, in northern Queensland where the local council actually has talked to Chinese investors to get them in to replace live cattle trade. Uh, because once you know the animals are in China, nobody knows what's going to happen with them. Whereas mm. if they get Australian beef, kind of with blockchain technology and traceability and everything, there then they can really follow up where things go, and they can guarantee that to their own consumers that they get the best quality goods they have. Well, professor, so that's, that's that's less 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 dramatic than it actually mm. uh, was was looking in the beginning. Okay. Well, Professor, you um, have allayed, I think, a lot of people's fears that the, the Chinese-Australian stoush doesn't go too far. Thanks very much for joining us on the program. Thanks, Peter. And that was Professor Hans Hendrich. Now, this is a time when we always look to find some good thing to sell. And I reckon a fantastic to sell uh, thing to sell is the Switzer Report. It has some of the best stock tips from some of the best stock tipsters in the country and recently I've just noticed that my wife has been making a fortune on the stock market and I said to her have you been doing that she said well I do edit the Switzer report so I've been taking all your tips and actually putting them into play and she's done fantastically well I reckon you could get an endorsement from Maureen any old day of the week anyway that's a that's a really honest observation of this uh, Switzer report. So just go to switzerreport.com.au. It'll cost you $397, the best $397 you'll ever spend, and it probably will be tax deductible for you as well. Well, at a time when uh, rocket ships are in the news with Richard Branson having a problem with his Virgin Galactica, if that's the right way of uh, calling it. We're talking to the CEO and founder of uh, Gilmore Technologies, Adam Gilmore. And, uh, you know, it's at a time when this venture-backed rocket company based in Queensland, Australia, is developing new capabilities for launching small satellites, satellites into space. Adam, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Adam, how significant is the the satellites out there that we can't see that I, I figure we're using on mass nowadays? I, I think it's really significant. People, you know, don't realise the impact of satellites. And, you know, even I didn't realise it even a couple of years ago until I seriously thought about looking around at what technology we use every day that uses satellite technology. And I love to give some great examples. So, you know, one of the best examples I give is every time you go to the ATM and you withdraw money from an ATM, the ATM basically connects up to the atomic clock in a GPS satellite to say, okay, at precisely this time and precisely this second, Peter took out $100 from the ATM from his account. So if anybody else tries to take money out other than that time, we know there's something wrong. Mm. So the whole world's transactions on ATMs use that technology. Paywave technology, exactly the same. And then you've got using GPS again. You know, I love to give an example. Like, you can always tell someone who's in their middle ages because you can ask them directions to somewhere and they'll still tell you, okay, go left, <laughs> go three streets down, turn right, look for the service station, go on another street, 
And, you know, kids these days look at you like you're crazy because mm. all they do is whip out their phone and put in the Google Maps and the GPS satellite is telling you exactly where it is. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's a game changer. And then you start going beyond GPS and looking at Earth observation. You know, when you ask, Siri, what's the weather tomorrow? What's the weather next week? All of that is coming from satellite data. Uh, and, and then it just goes even beyond that into uh, how farmers use satellite data to, to manage their, their crops. And, the, and watering, and even they can even detect how much fertilizer they need to put into the ground from space. Mm. Um, and then, then you look at the military side, how much they use space, and they you know, dramatically rely on space for all of their battlefield technology and systems. So space is definitely super, super important to, to our way of life. Okay, so how many satellites are there out there? Oh, it's from- a tough one to... I want to answer because it changes all the time, but there's roughly around 5,000 operational satellites uh, in orbit at the moment, and it's going up all the time because, you know, literally every month there's about another 60 to 80 to get sent up into space. And the first one was Telstar, is that, is that right? Uh, well, no, the first one was Sputnik. Sputnik. Well, the, Russians, yeah. the Russians put Sputnik up and scared everybody, um, and then after that, the Americans got one called Juno, and then Telstar was obviously Telstar was the first communication satellite that went up. That's ah, right. Okay, because it, it's it's funny. Like we, we don't think about all those things. In fact, you you took me back to probably oh probably fifteen years ago in Perth when I was you know d- doing uh, speeches there, and whenever I would get into a cab, if they were using, I think they were if I had, I was on American Express. And I was trying to pay a, a cab. Sometimes a cab driver would say, "Oh, the satellite's down," which meant I, it was code for we want to be paid by cash. And of course, you know, you didn't know whether the taxi driver was having a lend of you to try and get cash, or it actually what was a a satellite problem. Those little yeah. machines that they had in the ATM machines had in the car were actually linked to a satellite of some kind. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the world has changed. So tell us what you're doing in this new space race. Well, we're building a low-cost, reliable launch vehicle to take small satellites into space. And so we're, we're tapping into the new phenomenon in the space industry that miniaturization is making satellites much smaller than they used to be. And it's changing the cost equation because you no longer need to build a satellite the size of a car. You can build one the size of a fridge. And then you don't need a massive rocket to send it up into space anymore. It's, you know, $100 million rocket. You can send it up on a 6 or $10 million rocket. So literally an order of magnitude has been taken off the cost of doing things in space with miniaturization technology. Uh, and that's really opened up the industry to, to new entrants. So, you know, there's a statistic that something like 350 companies have been formed in the last 10 years that have raised venture capital backing. Um, and there's something like, you know, 50 new ones starting every year. Uh, and it's all kind of applications. It's stuff in space, it's down on the ground using data from space. Um, it's components of satellites, it's space tugs to take satellites around. So there's all these businesses coming up 
uh, into this space now because the cost of getting into space is so much cheaper. Mm. So when a rocket takes a satellite and puts it in, I guess, some kind of rotating, what's the, the word I'm looking for? Orbit. Orbit, Orbit. exactly. Um, when they do that, does the rocket ship disappear? Like it's a, it's a $10 million spend, but you don't get it back? No, you don't get it back. I mean, there's people that are working on trying to get some of the technology back. So SpaceX is probably the market leader in reusability. They, if they bring the first stage back, they still lose the second stage. Uh, and um, Rocket Lab's toying around with getting their first stage back. Uh, and we eventually will look at getting ours reusable, but that's a lot more development cost and time. So in the initial time, we're not going to be making ours reusable. Okay. So at, at this point in time, is there any satellite that you actually have put into orbit? And if so, can you tell us about it? No, we haven't yet. We're still about two years away from our first orbital test launch. Mm. So we're, you know, we've been developing rocket engines and other technology for the last four years, um, and we've got about two years ahead of us before we make our first launch. Okay. Are you supported by private equity, or have you have you you know listed on the Australian Stock Exchange or anything like that? Uh, no, we're supported by venture capital. So we've had two rounds of venture capital uh, go into the company, which which we've you know been very thankful for. Mm. And, and and why do people trust you, Adam? Like, what, what's your your history with rocket ships and and uh, satellites? So people are prepared to put their hard earned money on your potential. I think um, my experience is actually as a banker. I was at Citibank for twenty years in financial markets. Uh, but that gave me a lot of business experience um, and cash management experience. Mm. And I started doing my own research on rocket technology and space technology um, probably in 2010. So by the time I started talking to venture capital, I you know, had lots of experience um, in the industry. I'd already, I started the company in 2014 with my own money. So I'd been going for three years. I'd already tested rocket engines. I had a pretty good business plan and confidence that I thought I could get what I wanted to do done. And I think that, you know, they like they like the pitch, they like the opportunity, they like the concepts I had on developing the technology. Here's the roadmap. I was pretty honest. You know, I said, you know, this is it could slip, the time could slip. Um, these are the technology risks, these are my plans to get over the technology. If it fails, this is my backup plan. So I think people like that. And so, Adam, just to give us, given your, your financial background, let's look at the first one you eventually launch. What's it going to cost and what, what kind of revenue will you get out of it? We're selling our rockets for about $10 million Aussie dollars. And we, it's early days yet, but we hope to make it for substantially less than that um, and then have a really good profit margin on each launch. Um, you know, one of the some of the costs associated with the launch or the rocket is components that we import from overseas. So we have a bit of Aussie dollar risk, mm. uh, but most of the components we can source from Australia, and all the manufacturing costs are in Australia because we make it in Australia. Well, mate, it's a great story, and we really hope uh, you kick goals and take your business at least to the moon and beyond. Thanks very much for joining us on the show. 
My pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we're going to have the great Matt Moran on the program. We'll be talking about you know, how he's doing during the coronavirus and how basically a, a cook from the bush has created a mega business. Join us next week. Oh, 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 oh,